Well, hey, March Madness fans. Any March Madness fans? It's like fantasy football crammed into two weeks. It's awesome. And if you're a basketball fan, and so, you know, usually around this time, my bracket starts going down. But last night, during the 5 o'clock gathering, I was teaching, and I moved into second place in my pool. It was pretty cool. Then during the 6.30 gathering, I moved into first place. So I'm just going to stay up on stage indefinitely until the end of the whole tournament. I don't know. It's been, it's been a blast. But last night, I had some technical difficulty. I could not... Uh, pull up anything on my phone, and then my computer just froze, and, and, and I'm dying. I mean, it was a first world problem, all right, you know, but it's March Madness, so pretty Im- important stuff. There, there are bigger problems in the world. If, if you read the news, it, it, you know that our world today, there's some stuff going on, right? And it's, it's a turbulent time, a turbulent time, a difficult time for many people um, around the world these days. And it's easy to kind of get insulated and, and to not really uh, necessarily feel that or be affected by that. We can really easily forget, kind of living in this region sometimes, um, what that's like. I was watching a movie this week that came out in 2002. It's a great movie, um, lots of Academy Awards, um, intense, intense movie, and, um, and it's called The Pianist, The Pianist. And it's a really true story, it's a true story about a guy named Spielman who is a uh, a professional musician, and in 1939, he's playing the piano, and he's on Polish radio, and it's September of 1939, and that's when the bombs started dropping from the Nazis, and World War II begins to explode. And they take his family, and they take him, and they take his neighbors, and they put him into a ghetto, and they starve him, and many of them die, and they beat them. And they live like that for a while. Somehow they're surviving, he's surviving. And this movie tells the story about how he actually survives. He lives to be 88 years old. But at one point they took him out of the ghetto. They rounded all of the Jewish people up. And they put him on a train. And somehow he gets, he gets pulled out of line. But, but, but the rest of his neighbors and family and even his father who he's with uh, has to get on this train to the death camp. Funny time to say this. What? I wish I knew you better. Thank you. I'm taking life. Get out. Just go. Go. 
have no idea what it means to be oppressed. I, I just have no idea. I have no idea what it's really like to be persecuted. I just, I just don't know. I don't know what it's like to have my very way of life and all that is sacred to me desecrated, destroyed, to be humiliated, to be stripped of my identity. And so I don't know what it's like to be Jewish under a Nazi regime. I don't know what it's like to live under American slavery. I don't know what it's like to have to face the communist killing fields of Cambodia when they came in and wiped out an entire generation. I don't know what it's like to be Indian under British rule in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, to live under apartheid in South Africa. I think sometimes art, good storytelling, a good novel, music, a piece of art has a way of unlocking a perspective for us that we might not have any other way. To kind of have our minds open so that we can see the world through somebody else's perspective. I have no idea what it's like to be a follower of Jesus in some regions on our globe these days. I don't know what that's like. As I've been thinking about this this week, I, I don't know what that's like, but I, I know what it's like to ask questions. I know what it's like to ask the question, why? Sometimes, why me? Why now? Why this? And if you're like me, maybe you know what it's like to wonder, to wonder what you do when things that you've been praying for, things that you've been hoping for, things that you've wished for, things that you have dreamed about might not come true. In fact, now you know some of your dreams simply won't come true if you've lived enough life. What do you do when the circumstances of your life seem to, seem to be in tension with your faith? What do you do when the faith and the belief that you have about a holy, a good, a faithful God seems to be in, in contradiction. There's a tension there with the life that you see when you look out the window and you look at the globe or you look at your own life and what you're going through. And so sometimes I, I, I just need a piece of art, a good story to unlock my mind, to, to, to help me understand from somebody else's perspective, from maybe the ancient Israelites' perspective, because they knew exactly what it was like to be oppressed and to be persecuted. From 586 B.C. until 70 A.D., they were a people under foreign powers. Multiple kingdoms and multiple kings ruled over them. Wars upon wars and oppressive stuff going on. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and they completely sack 
Jerusalem. They destroy the wall. They destroy the first temple, the most sacred place in all of Judaism, that special place for them that represented the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth come together. There was the tabernacle where Moses used to speak to God as a man speaks to his friend. And then this was Solomon's temple. And it was sacred to them and it was gone. And thousands are shipped off. Thousands are sold into slavery. Thousands are killed. And only the poorest of the poor are left in the land. And they're facing complete economic collapse and disaster. What do you do when you just don't understand? About 40 years later, there were, or 50 years later, about 40,000 were allowed to go back into Jerusalem. They're led by two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the wall. And this is a big deal. These things represent blessing, and maybe God is back. Maybe the God that we believe in, that faithful God, it, he's back and he's going to bless us. Maybe it's springtime again. You ever have that happen in your life where you're going through a dark period, and then there's a flicker of hope. And some good things are starting to happen. This surge of hope begins to return to the Jews at this period of time. They're still the poorest of the poor. They're at the bottom of the economic ladder. They're still being reigned over by oppressive powers. But maybe, just maybe, something good is going to happen. And there's that little flame. And somebody comes along and ruins your springtime and they just snuff it out. In 167 B.C., this crazy king is in charge. His name is Antiochus IV. He calls himself Epiphanes because it means the visible God, the God who is manifest. And he starts printing coins with his picture on them about the fact that he is divine. That's what he thought of himself. But the people didn't call him Epiphanes. The people called him Epinemus, which means madman. And that's exactly what he was he hated everything jewish he wanted to destroy the jewish culture and so he brought in all the greek influence that he could it was called the hellenization of the jewish people and some of the jewish people wanted to they they wanted that they wanted the greek culture they're like let's do this and others didn't want it and there wasn't civil war but there was a lot of unrest and the very top position in the land was the high priest and antiochus comes in and he gets a puppet high priest, and he removes the actual high priest, throws him into prison for a while. And now he's got his rulers in place, and he's trying to eradicate the Jewish cultural way of life. But there's another power that's brewing, and this power is big, and this power is going to take over the whole world. It's Rome. And Antiochus knows that his days are short, and so he wants to consolidate power. So he goes off, and he's decides to attack Jerusalem, but he's met by a Roman general. And this Roman general actually draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus. That's where we get the phrase, a line in the sand. And he tells this, uh, he tells Antiochus, if you cross that line, then you're, you'll be declaring war on Rome. And Antiochus knew exactly what that meant. And so he goes home humiliated. He goes home in disgrace. And there's a rumor brewing in Jerusalem that he had actually been killed. And so those traditionalists, they regain power. And they put the other ones, kind of his puppet high priest, in prison. And he hears about it. 
and he's livid. And he returns to Jerusalem, and it's an absolute nightmare. First thing he does is he goes into the temple, that sacred space. And he sets up an altar to Zeus. And then he sacrifices a pig on the altar. And then he outlaws the holy days. He outlaws the Sabbath day. He outlaws the food laws. He outlaws the temple worship. You couldn't even say you were Jewish. And the ancient writers talk about what was going on during this time. Thousands are slaughtered. And there's people huddling in a cave that want to celebrate the Sabbath. And they're found and they're pulled out and they're slaughtered. Military was going from house to house and pulling people out and committing unspeakable acts against the women and the children. Two moms were found that had circumcised their babies and they were paraded around Jerusalem, taken up to a high point on the wall, and they were just thrown off with their babies. This is an absolute nightmare. What do you do when you don't understand? Right around this time, the ancient Israelites begin to cling to some writings in the Hebrew Scriptures. They were stories that had been told for hundreds of years. They started being told when, when actually they were in exile. And some of the stories were hero stories. Uh, they had to do with these four young men that were taken into exile. Three of them, the, you, you may have heard of their, their names. Even if you've never read uh, some of the old uh, writings, like in the book of Daniel, you may have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, if you watch Veggie Tales. So, you know, if you have kids. And how they're thrown into a fiery furnace, and it was so hot that those that were throwing them in, they're, they're burned up. And they want to remain faithful to God. They don't, they don't want to bow to this golden statue. And God rescues them. It's a hero story. In the face of an oppressive regime, in a foreign land, in exile, God is still there. And you may have heard of the story of Daniel. He's thrown to the lion's den because he wants to continue to pray to his God. But it's outlawed. And there's some other uh, kind of politicians that manipulate the system and they manipulate the king. And so Daniel faces certain death, but God shows up in the midst of that. It's a hero story. And yeah, th those four guys are heroes, but ultimately in the book of Daniel, God is the hero. And he rescues his people. Because, you know, sometimes I just, I, I, I just don't get it. I just don't understand. And it's helpful for me to, when I, when I read certain parts of the scripture, to kind of back up and kind of go, okay, what was really happening during that time? What's the historical context of when this was written and when the stories were told? And by the time Antiochus is reigning in his madness over the ancient Israelites, people are holding on to the book of Daniel. It's in the Hebrew canon at that time, and they're sharing the stories. They're gathering, and they're saying, okay, we, we believe in this faithful God. We look out the window, and it doesn't look like God's around. It doesn't look like he knows what's happening, but, but, but we believe that he will be faithful to us. What do you do in your life when you just don't understand? 
if you're, if you're new at Lakeside, we've been in this series recently. It's, it's called The God Who Sees Me. And it's, it, it's been great. We just believe that no matter where you're at in life, no matter what you're suffering through, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, that there is a God who sees you completely. And I've loved the way that Brad has sort of unpacked uh, this series. We've talked about Moses seeing the great I Am when he's wandering in the desert and, and he's a shepherd and he has great things to do and he sees the burning bush and he has this intimate encounter with the God of the universe. And we see Hagar who's about to die and God shows up and God, God sees her and she says, God, there is a God who sees me. We see Abraham and, 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 and Abraham goes through all of his challenges and, and he says, there is a God who provides. And I love I love this phrase that Brad used a couple weeks ago. I want to put it up for you guys so that you can see it. Um, he was talking about this, and he says, he says, there is a God who sees you. And he says, if he sees you, he knows you. And if he knows you, it's because he's with you. And for me, even though I don't, completely understand i don't get what it means to be oppressed i don't get what it means to be persecuted i don't understand what the people were going through i need a god who sees me because all of that adds up for me to the fact that he cares he does he doesn't just see me from far away he sees me intimately and he's involved in the very fabric of my life and he your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to open up to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's a strange book. It's, it's a weird and wacky book. And, and early on in the book of Daniel, you have these great hero stories, and, and people are sharing these things, and there's miracles going on. But by the time we get to Daniel chapter 7, it just gets kind of strange. And Daniel has a dream. And he records this dream, and we read about this experience in Daniel chapter 7. Look down in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And so at this time in Near Eastern literature, not just biblical literature, but the surrounding nations as well, they would describe the four winds of heaven or the winds of heaven as sort of this sovereign power, kind of like the four corners of the globe. And so it had to do with this sovereign, this power that was overall. And we see this power overall, and, and this power is doing something. It's churning up the sea. It's engaging it. And the sea uh, was, was usually referred to as something that was chaotic. It was symbolic of evil and chaos. In Genesis 1, we see the Spirit of God is hovering over the sea, and then he brings order out of the chaos. And so something's happening here. Something's brewing here. Right at the beginning of Daniel's dream, you say, oh, something, something's going on. This, this sovereign overall power is engaging the chaos and the evil. And that's something that I think we needed to hear. That's something that the ancient Israelites needed to hear. That's something that our world today needs to hear. That there is a sovereign power overall that will engage the chaos and the evil of our world today. 
He describes the first three creatures, and then in verse 7 it says, And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. And that's not good news for Daniel. Crushed, trampled, devoured. This is not something that Daniel wants to hear. The passage goes on, it says, And it was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And at this point, if I'm Daniel, I'm getting a bit freaked out about now. I mean, I'm not calling this a dream. I'm, I'm calling this a nightmare. And what's interesting about this passage is that earlier in the book of Daniel, he's the one who's interpreting dreams, but he has this dream interpreted for him. And he's told that the four beasts represent four kings or four kingdoms who will rise from the earth and they will rule. Now remember, Daniel's in exile and he wants to go home. And in fact, at one point, he thinks the time is up. The time of exile is up. And he's praying and he ends up talking to this angel and the angel says, no, your time's not up. In fact, you have a really, really long time until exile is up. And so Daniel doesn't want to hear about three kingdoms that are going to come and rule over and be oppressive, let alone a fourth that's going to devour and trample and crush. This is not good news. This is that springtime and that flame starting to go out to him. And he, he's told about this fourth kingdom. It's going to be horrible. It's, it's going to destroy. And he's told that the ten horns represent ten kings. And so now we have 13 kings. And then there's a little horn who represents another king. And he's going to be even worse than all the other ones. And so now we got 14 kings. It's like, God, come on. Show up. You ever been there? You ever been there like, God, come on, right now, this year, you're going to end this chapter and you're going to start a new one and and, and, and night's going to be over and the dawn is going to come and the sun is going to rise. Have have you been there? I, I, I don't know what it's like to be oppressed, but I've been there. What do you do when you you just don't understand? verse 25 it says that this little horn this king will speak against the most high god oppress his holy people those are the israelites and basically try to change their complete cultural and religious way of life and it's going to last for a while modern scholars they 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 debate on on who all these beasts represent and and, and, and the different kings, some say it's, it's Babylon, then it's the Medes and Persians, then it's the Greeks, and there was a whole bunch of 
there's actually 12 Greek teams, but they take two of them away because they didn't live very long. So there's 10, and then Antiochus comes along, and, and, and there's all this stuff. Some th- people throw Rome in there. And, and you know, you read, you read books like this, and it's confusing. Or you read a book like the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, and, and it's kind of confusing. And it's a type of literature. It's, it's a type of genre known as apocalyptic genre. Apocalypse means revelation. And, you know, a lot of people, they try to put it all together and come up with a lot of scenarios. And, and this is how everything's going to happen. And this is when it's going to happen. And this is why it's going to happen. And this is who it's going to happen to. And, and I think that's a lot of fun. You know, if you're into theology and you like to do that stuff and unpack that stuff. And I think it can be helpful at times. But it's not actually the primary purpose of the apocalyptic genre. In fact, the primary purpose of this type of genre was to give people who are suffering hope. To meet people right where they're at and say, in a crazy way of talking, we're going to unveil, we're going to reveal that there is a God who sees you in the midst of your suffering. And so can you imagine, can you imagine being one of the early Israelites under Antiochus and, and, and it's, just, it, it's just crazy and you're just holding on to the old stories. You're holding on and saying, there is a God. There is a God that's represented as, as one that overcomes the powers of the world. And you're just holding on. You're just hoping. What do you do when you just don't understand? One of the beautiful things about the scriptures is that it, they're so real. They, they ring true to real life. There's real suffering. There's real questioning. There's real struggling. And, and what's interesting about it is you read through the whole Bible, woven through, there is this sense of beauty. There is this sense of hope. There is this sense of purpose. There is this sense that, that, that God gets it. And, and he's going to deal with it. And that's what happens not through just through the whole scriptures. But right here in this chapter, there is beautiful stuff woven through all of it. Something that we can hold on to. Something that you and I today in our lives, I believe, need to hold on to. Look down in verse 9. Daniel records, as I looked, thrones were set in place. And so apparently... There's another king that's going to show up. And here he is. It says, and the ancient of days took his seat. The ancient of days. I love that. This king is before all other kings. His clothing was as white as snow, which would have represented holy, holy, holy. The hair on his head was white like wool, which represented which would have represented ultimate wisdom. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, which would have represented power, actual power to do something about the chaos and the evil in the world. Thousands upon thousands attended him. This is a massive kingdom. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is the largest kingdom. And then it says, the court was seated and the books were opened. And I love that because this passage screams of justice. And the Israelites were longing to be vindicated. They were longing for justice. Justice has 
to do with the idea of setting wrong things right. And we long for justice too. I believe that, that, the, that they would have been reminded of the ancient prophecies, like in Isaiah where it says that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. How do the waters cover the seas? The waters are the seas. The glory of the Lord. God's glory has to do with his justice and his beauty and his love. His glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Do you not long for that day? When the lion and the lamb will lay down together, Isaiah chapter 11, there will be peace. There is a God who sees all of it, and he is the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days sees you. He sees your family. He sees your struggles. In verse 11, following along it says then i continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn again this little horn maybe it was antiochus a lot of people think that's who it was and there's different debates about that but 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 this little horn was speaking and and it says i kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was thrown into the blazing fire and this is good news for daniel because the ancient of days the king over kings begins to deal with the evil and that's good Verse 13 says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And if we go back and we start to remember some of the Old Testament imagery, uh, the, the cloud always represented God's presence and God's blessing. So the people came up out of Egypt and they went to the mountain and they entered into this covenant with God as the cloud descended on the mountain and Moses went up into the cloud and he received the law and then Moses comes out and the people enter into a covenant with God and they say, we will follow you. You will be our God and we're going to be your people. The cloud represents his presence. The cloud guides them through the desert for 40 years. The cloud descends on the tabernacle where Moses used to go in and speak to God as a man speaks to his friend. In Solomon's temple, the first temple, the great temple, the cloud fills the temple so much at the dedication that they have to stop the worship services. They can't even continue because the cloud is so full. But after, after the first temple is destroyed, there's no evidence in the scriptures, there's no evidence outside the scriptures in second temple literature as they call it that the cloud ever returned where are you god where's your blessing where's your presence we need you the cloud doesn't return until a fisherman three fishermen and their leader a carpenter walk up on a hill and in the Gospels, you can read about Jesus and Peter, James, and John when the cloud envelops Jesus and he's transfigured before, him, before them and his clothes become so white, whiter than any clothes can be, can be dyed. Reminds me of the robe of the Ancient of Days. And then Jesus, after the resurrection, uh, after Easter, and, and, and he's alive again, he... He ascends into heaven, into the cloud, and the angel says, hey, he's going to come the same way. He's going to come on the clouds again. In fact, 
In fact, this, uh, this phrase, son of man, this idea of the son of man became so popular. It became so popular to refer to, to this person that was coming, this person that would rule and all authority. And if you continue to read the passage, you see that all authority is given to this son of man. And, and everyone and all the kings will bow to the son of man. And that became so common to refer to the son of man as the same as this one that would come, this anointed one in the Hebrew, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. It, it became synonymous with the son of God. And so by the time Jesus shows up and he starts referring to himself as the son of man, he knew exactly what he was talking about. And people knew exactly what he meant. He stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, right before he goes to the cross. And Caiaphas asked him point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And in the book of Mark, he says, I am. that but he said and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one that's a quote from psalm 110 that was also a messianic passage as they called it and then he quotes daniel chapter 7 and he says that you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven verse 63 the high priest tore his clothes why do we need any more witnesses he asked you have heard the blasphemy what do you think and they all condemned him worthy of death and they let him to the cross for you and for me daniel hears this and he ultimately knows that god wins that god wins in the midst of your darkness in the midst of your suffering the ancient days sees you he sees you and he knows you he knows you and he's with you because he cares and one day he will wipe every eye, or he will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more crying, no mourning, no pain. And Jesus will come again on the clouds. I love the way the chapter wraps up. It wraps up, it wraps up so brilliantly. At the end of it, in verse 28, Daniel says, This is the end of the matter. It's the end of his dream. It's the end of his nightmare. But it's the end of the matter. If God is on the throne, that is the end of the matter. And with that, I can make it through another day. With that, I can hold on. And I love the reality of how it ends because it, there's a little bit more there. It says, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. There's this sense of, hey, it's not all over yet. This really shakes me up. I'm still struggling here, but I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to panic. Because there is a God who actually sees. And if that's the truth, then that is the end of the matter. What do you do when you just don't understand? I, 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 think, I think one of the things that's helpful is to do what the ancient Israelites did. They would share the old stories with one another. They went back and they looked at the faithfulness of God and, and they immersed themselves in the scripture. When you sit in the scripture and you immerse yourself there and you try to ask yourself, where do I find myself in the story? How can I identify with that character in the story? 
there's something about that that, 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 that that happens. God makes himself available to us when we will sit with the scriptures. And then there's this sort of ebb and flow because because we can gather together and we can worship and we can pray and we can seek God through prayer. And when we pray, we make ourselves available to God. And so it's this rhythm of God making himself available to us and us making ourselves available to God. I, I think that's what they did. I think that's what what we do. It's it's what we need to do together in groups, walking in our own relationship with God. Something to hold on to that He is faithful. He is true. He will come on the clouds. He is before all because He is the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is you. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thanks so much that you see each and every single heart here this morning. God, nothing that any of us are going through here in the auditorium, over in the family room, nothing that any of us are going through is a surprise to you. And God, you're not afraid for us to for us to come to you and say, hey, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. What are you doing here? Are you going to show up? You love that kind of honesty. You love that kind of authenticity. And you love us. You are a God that each and every day of our lives watches over and protects us. And we thank you for that, God. 